Today's guest, Hala Hanina. People now are actually starving to death. At least seven babies. My father told me five generations of us have been suffering because of the Israeli occupation and we are still suffering. The grandfather in Nakba 1948, the family massacred. He had to move to Gaza. My father's father was having a very successful business because of the Israeli occupation violations. He had heart issue and he died. My father, from the age of six, he was orphan and he had to work at the shop where his father was working in this aggression in minutes. Israel have bombarded all our home. Everything we ever had is now gone. Himself is suffering. His kids are all suffering. And his grandchildren from the age of 12 until the age of five months are all suffering. Five generations and it's increasing. My father is very protective for us. He was against my activism. After the Baptist hospital was bombed, he told me, Hala, talk, spread what's happening. At this genocide, we're not living. We're just breathing because they haven't yet taken that from us. Hello and welcome to episode 116 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for decolonization, justice, and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Gaz and Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram, and you can call me Mikey Intifada if you needed a fire extinguisher, but all you had was a gun. Okay, sorry. Very heavy. Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Find us also on Patreon, where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes and additional podcasts. We're also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours with our Patreon subscribers only, so check us out on patreon.com slash palestinepod. Today's guest is Hala Hanina, a social and political Palestinian activist, fourth-generation Palestinian refugee from Gaza, and a PhD researcher in sociology and politics currently based in the UK. Hala, welcome to the Palestine Pod. Of course, I saw you on... Palestine deep dives. So we love them. We appreciate so much what they're doing. And we really wanted to have you on as a voice with family in Gaza who grew up in Gaza and you survived multiple aggressions. And I believe from what I saw, this is your first time being outside of Gaza during an aggression, correct? True. Yeah. Were you in Gaza at all in the beginning or were you all like gone the entire time? I traveled at the beginning of October because I'm a PhD student. It's my fa- my third year. I've just finished my field work in Gaza, 14 months, 12 months field work, two months of holiday. And I came one week before my husband because of the visa stuff. I had to come at the beginning of October. On the 7th of October, you know what happened? I tried to go back. I called my husband immediately. I knew it would be bad because each aggression there worse than the one before and I saw what they did in 2021 and in May 2023 I was there uh but he told me just wait for like 24 hours until we check what happens with the borders and within a few hours they have already bombarded both borders so it was impossible since the first day to go back mm-hmm. yeah still is your husband you're still trying is your husband still there unfortunately yeah I'm really sorry to hear all of that and I commend you for your speaking in this moment because it's not easy to process grief and trauma and at the same time be a voice and to like assemble your thoughts 
and to speak clearly because as Palestinians, we don't have time or luxury to grieve quietly. Every second counts and every second is so urgent for us to be doing whatever we can to stop this. We don't process, we don't grieve. We don't have the time for that. We didn't have it. And specifically at this time, we don't have it. It's crucial that we talk. It's the only thing that we can do. I hope, I wish if I can do something bigger and I tried, but still I can't. I can't stop what's happening there. But the least I can do is trying. It's why I'm outside. That's why my friends and family in Gaza are telling me, you've been out for a reason and I'm still trying to find that reason. Hopefully I will. Yeah, it seems so arbitrary. Like you left Gaza at the beginning of October. It's so arbitrary. My brother-in-law and my sister were supposed to go to Gaza in October. And then my mom said, you know, maybe you should think about going in Christmas instead. Then you can maybe have more of a vacation time. And my brother-in-law hasn't been back in years to see his family. And so it was the first time they were going to go as a married couple, the first time they were going to introduce their baby to his family. And it was just a simple arbitrary discussion about, oh, maybe you should go in December and January instead. And then they pushed their flight to go a few months later without even realizing what would happen. How is his family? They they didn't end up being there, but it could have. They all are from the north of Gaza and all of their houses were destroyed. Multiple apartments and multiple homes in the Tal al-Hawa neighborhood of Gaza. I live there. Sorry? Tal al-Hawa. Tal al-Hawa yeah, is where the, my family is. Yeah. Oh. All houses, even our house, it was bombarded totally. All the buildings, it's gone. All yeah, our memories, everything. Yeah. All Tal al-Hawa is same. gone. All the neighborhoods. Yes. I'm so sorry for them. How is the family? I'm so sorry for you. I'm so sorry for you. Um, yeah, no, they, they evacuated to the south. They were in Nusayrat for a while. Then they went down to Rafah. And actually, just a few days ago, my brother-in-law's parents, we were able to get them out. But all of his sisters and brothers are still there. And all of his nieces and nephews, who are very young, are still there. And so he oh, just God. got his parents out. And he's trying to help them find some place to stay now in Egypt. And it's just... Yeah. We never have a chance to just like build wealth and enjoy life. Like I feel like Palestinians are always starting over. My father, when I called my father uh, after the Baptist um, Ahri Hospital was bombed, he was like very emotional. And at that time he told me, my father is very protective for us. And he's been always very protective for me because I'm activist in human rights and women rights and political activist. So he was very worried on me. And he always was against my activism because he wanted to protect me. He didn't push me against that, but he, he was very afraid of me. However, after the Baptist hospital was bombed, he told me, Hala, talk, spread what's happening to everyone outside. We need people to come and stop this insanity and stop everything that's happening. And on that day, he told me, Hala, five generations of my family have been living a miserable life and suffering because of the Israeli occupation. And we are still suffering until now. His grandfather had his land, his village stolen from him, and he was forcibly evicted, and his family was massacred, and he had to move to Gaza in 1948, Nakba. My grandfather, and then my father's father, was suffering all of his life. He was a trader, and he he was having a very successful business. However, because of the Israeli occupation uh, violations and all of that, he had like heart issue, and he collapsed. He couldn't withstand what's happening because they affected his trade, and he, he died after that. And then my father, from the age of six, he was orphaned, and he had to work at the shop where his father was working and he had to help his sisters, his brother, 
daughters complete their education and also to bring savings for the family. And after that, when he and my mom got married, they decided to travel outside for a little bit so they can gather a little bit of money and build, have our privacy and our uh, uh, our life and education. And and then he told me, and in this aggression, easily, in minutes, Israel have bombarded all our home, all the building, all together. And now himself is suffering. His his kids, all of us, uh, the, the girls and boys are all suffering. And his grandchildren uh, from the age of 12 until the age of five, five months are all suffering. So it's five generations of us have been suffering and still suffering and it's increasing it doesn't decrease thank you so much for sharing that with us i think lara is frozen yeah lara is having tech issues right now i'm really sorry no it's fine trust me i've done like lots of interviews and inside aggressions like in other aggressions i've done that so cutting internet the electricity outage was very normal in any interview You said something about how your parents didn't want you to speak. They didn't want you to be an activist. Can you share more Um, about that? I'm very active in Gaza politically, like with uh, decision makers in peace coming to um, usual to Palestine and not able to cross into Gaza because Israel denied them the access and permit to do that. So usually we have uh, Zoom callings and such stuff with uh, organizations like Oxfam and others who do some part of political activism. And I'm also uh, active in socialist stuff, social justice, women rights, human rights, children rights, and all domestic violence related things. And because of that, you know, it's not easy. It's dangerous. I might be opposed in so many ways, even my own reputation. And because of that, my father was always very protective. However, he has never jumped into my face and prevented me from that. And for instance, I'm a dentist in my first degree. However, he accepted and was happy for me to do a career shift and study anthropology and sociology and politics instead of that, to be able to help in the community. However, he didn't want me to be that active while doing that because he wanted me to be protected, but he didn't stand in my face at the same time. However, when the Baptist hospital, Ahliha Baptist hospital was bombed, I like I spent hours trying to call them and finally the call happened and he was very emotional. He was almost crying and in a cracked voice he told me, Hala, spread our voice, talk and be active. We need the universe to know what's happening to us. The reality of the Israeli occupation must be exposed and we need justice. And that, like when I, like I started crying for so many reasons, but when I ended the call, I burst into cry because for me, I know how protective my father is. And to tell me that, then he knows that his life and everyone's life might be like killed and ended in any minute. So he know that that would put me in danger. However, he knows that all of us are already in danger of being killed in any second and any minute. So why not to talk? And that's why for the first time and a very sad mo- moment, my father was very encouraging to me to be as vocal as I, as I can. And that's why I'm trying to be as vocal as I can to be able to spread the message and also to be as loyal to his wish as possible while hoping that this would make a change one day. Hoping it would be now, still I can't see it. It's more than 150 days. It's more than five months. I can't believe it, Wallah. I can't believe it. But it's still happening in front of the open eyes of the world. Everyone knows what's happening 
and they're they're letting it to happen. Michael, do you have a question? I feel like this is an episode where I'm mostly going to be listening. And okay, that's, that's okay. fine. <laughs> did your family go to the south, or did they stay displaced in the north and middle? My parents are from Gaza city, uh, which is up, up to the um, the new division of the Israeli occupation of Gaza. Gaza is actually five governorates. North, Gaza City, Wasta, Middle Area, Khan uh, Yunus, and Rafah. However, Israel have divided it to two, two parts, North and South. So in Israeli division, they are in, they were in the North, in Gaza City. And my husband's family are from Jabalia Khan. So they are from the North of Gaza. And at the beginning of this genocide, I, I came early because of my visa for my PhD and also because I was teaching. I was a, a teacher assistant in my university. And on the 12th of October, each day of aggression, like we don't sleep at nights because Israel usually intensifies their aggressions at nights. So in each aggression in the past, when I was in Gaza and in this one, I've never slept in the night until like the, the, the sun goes out and then I might have a little bit of sleep. And on that day, I was still, uh, still awake and my family had already, they were in Gaza City in our home and they had evacuated already five times in that day. And they were in, in my in-laws home. And then they had no electricity and they had no telecommunication connection. And at 2 a.m., international organizations was receiving uh, emails by Israel that they need to be evacuating from Gaza uh, or north of the valley to the south of the valley. And I got that message and I was like, like from friends, and I was like, what the hell is happening? It is another Nakba. How would I tell my parents? How would I tell my husband? How would I tell my the people I love? Like there's two million people in Gaza must be told right now. And it was like a rumor at the beginning. And um, some people said it might be a hacking to the system, but then Jazeera have announced it because Israel have told them that. And then uh, I spent like five to four hours just um, I went out from my, my home, um, my place in, in the UK, and I just walked in the streets. I was trying to call them. I wasn't able to do that. I wanted to scream. I wanted to explode, but nothing was happening. And I, I couldn't connect to them. And after like four to five hours from extreme worrying and crying and screaming, I was finally able to reach them. And my sister answered and she was like, Hala, we're too tired. We can't do, we can't move. And I was like, you have until 2 p.m. You must move now. It's already 11. You don't have enough time and there is no vehicle. So we have to walk it. And there is something they call like safety corridor. And it's, she told me, I don't want. I told her, please give me my dad, my mom, anyone. And I started like, you know, a conversation of convincing them. It's not another Nakba. Don't worry. You will evacuate for a little bit. You'll go out, back and all of that although I know that it is another Nakba because because we know Israel but I couldn't tell them that because I wanted them to be alive it's the least I can wish and I started at the same time calling my husband and telling them the same and all of that and luckily my family went out like on 12 uh, uh, p.m and my husband's family like sometime around it and they were both able to reach Rafah or the south of Gaza around like 2 p.m and something however on Jazeera Israel have announced that the evacuation route is safe until like 24 hours, so until 2 a.m. the next day. And in a few hours, friends of us who were like having, like, like some vehicles was able to take many people, like hundreds of people, and then other people were walking in the safety route and all of that. Many of them were friends of us, like families. And the Israeli occupation have bombarded them 
all of them killing more than 100 on the safety corridor and safety route. And since that day, I had my family in the south, but they were scattered. My my sister was uh, sheltering in a hospital. She was there with her husband. Three kids, one of them was less than a month year old. I just attended his delivery a few weeks before I traveled. And they were in the hospital. They had no tent. They had nothing. She she and her husband divided the, the warmth of their bodies between the children. She would take the baby for a while and put him in her lap to make him warm inside her clothes. And then her husband would take the two kids, seven and nine, and put, him, put them in his lap and also warm them. And they would exchange that all the night to make sure that their children would be would be warm. And they have done that for at least five days. After that, they had a tent and I can't describe the amount of suffering they had to go through, specifically with the lack of food. She, uh, they had brutalized the other two children to eat and then she started to have a, like, a deficiency in her milk for breastfeeding of her baby. Then she had to divide the meal with the kids and all of that. And this is like one example of my sister of few days, you can make it for one and half million of the community. And the rest of my family were in different areas. Like um, in, in Gaza, we don't have any homeless. We have never had homeless. The first time I've seen homeless was in the UK. Although it's shocking, but this is this was my first time. In each aggression, we have people who have their homes demolished, their buildings demolished, but we usually have them in our houses. We welcome them. Anyone who knows them, doesn't know them, we do that. Or we rent another place for them if we knew about them, if they were like in the street or something. We don't leave them spending any night in the air or something. However, at this genocide, the amount of Israeli damage was unprecedented. And now we have so many, if not most of the community, 1.9 or 2 million are homeless now. And my family are in so many ways are the same. And they are, they have been scattered like with different families. Some of them are with other five families, another are with, with five, four families and all of that. And some, like some of the families are families they have never met before. However, those families were able to bring other families they have never met before to stay with them almost 150 days with, with knowing that they're not safe and having other people doesn't make them safer or anything. It's the opposite. However, they have taken them while they're all starving and having scarcity in all resources, but they have shared it because, because this is how Palestinians are. Even in that, we're not allowed to have it in like a dignified way. Israel still starving people and killing them and making their lives miserable. Thank you for sharing that. Can you talk about the service that is extorting people to escape the genocide, please? In Gaza, we've always had... Um, not always. Since 2005, I told you, we're outside Gaza. My family went outside to be able to, to work for a while and build a home. And in 2005, we came for a visit. And in that visit, which was in the summer vacation, Israel started to dismantle their illegal settlements. And because of that, the Israeli blockade over Gaza, uh, over Gaza started. It wasn't official yet. It had started, like, the movement restrictions. And after that, in 2007, and all of that, the official blockade had started. And the movement, our movement, was usually from two routes, the air is one with the Israeli colony side and the Egypt side, which is Egypt border side. 
And for years, we had so many issues in accessing outside and so many other, like the, the blockage is not just movement blockage, there's so many things, but just to focus on the, the movement restriction. For instance, in 2017, I had my first like specialization scholarship in Turkey. And I wasn't able to start it because I was denied access by the Israeli occupation. And after after like years after that, Israel have allowed a little bit access to the Palestinians either by Air's border or the Egyptian border. However, it was always like we had to queue. Like if I had to travel, then I would queue at least for three, five months or something like that. And with Israel, you apply like for a permit and you wait like for three to two months. And if you didn't have a response, then it's it's gone. It, you can't do anything. That's why we apply for both borders at the same time. And at that time, our neighboring country have invented something called VIB uh, coordination, which means that you would pay amount of money, which usually equal 1000 USD, and then you would be able to VIP, have your name on the border and across to, the, to, to Egypt and then outside to whatever is your destination. And because of our, you know, uh, some of us are sick, some of us had education, work, stuff. So we we had limitations and we had to go out on time. So many of us have been using this as much as they could because it's too expensive to pay 1000 USD just to cross. It's not about the tickets, not about the transportation or the bag stuff and all of that. It's not that. It's just to have your name on the on the border. And at this at this Israeli genocide, at the beginning there was no movement at all for for people. There was some information that some coordinators are allowing people to cross to the Egyptian side by receiving from 5000 USD on a person to 10000 USD and some people would pay like 11000 12 thousand USD or something to be able to just to cross. And then after that, there was a little bit of, there was scandal after that because some people paid more than 100,000 USD just to, ha- to, to, to be alive. To, to be allowed the opportunity to stay alive in a time of genocide. And because of the scandal of, of having that known by news and the media agencies, there was a little bit of management and organization of it. And now there is like a company that works in, in that. And they usually, they, until now, they allow adults to go out paying 5,000 USD and each child 2,500 USD, even a baby. Each of them have, have to pay that. So if you're talking about average family with four kids, you would have to pay 20,000 USD just to go out, not even to start a life. And that circles back to what we were talking about earlier, where it's like the occupation of Palestine makes it impossible for Palestinians to accumulate wealth. and even during this genocide, they are cash grabbing from Palestinians in diaspora who are fundraising for Palestinians in Gaza. It's like they already are exiled, right? They already were kicked out. Their families have suffered enough. And now they started, they built a new life. They built community and they managed to make wealth. And now that wealth is being extracted again. Yeah. To be just to be able to not 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 even to start alive. Not just at all. To be, just to be able to escape the possibility of being killed in this genocide, and it's not always accepted. Many people are are rejected from the list. So it's something you try, and it could be rejected. And many many families are now separated because of that. And Israel and- have been like using so many strategies on us. They have accumulating. Israel is accumulating wealth over testing weapons of us because we are their, their testing laboratory and our buddies, our our community, our Gaza, all of it is now demolished because of that. And they use other strategies where they bomb us now and then let us die later, which is not just dying because there is 
like they're killing us or they're killing our beloved people so we don't have good psychology to live or because they are uh, they have damaged all the infrastructure and damaged all the agricultural places and our factories and uh, our trade and all of that so that's where starving to death but also they're killing us by, by killing the places we love by 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 killing our memories by killing our knowledge by killing our heritage places to make sure that we, we don't have any possibility of, of living now or later in 150 days killed the most amount of people and demolished the largest amount of infrastructure and a city that was televised to every armed factory or every country that would like to have a war or something to be able to sh- to see how beautiful and prosperous the arm the arm stuff and the arm technology Israel had and how they were able it to be feasible in killing us and damaging us to the to the level that we hardly are able to live and we're not living we're just breathing because they haven't yet taken that from us yeah it was a weapons expo. Sometimes yes. they'll have like conferences in Las Vegas where people will go and get drunk and then Raytheon and Northrop Grumman will like chum around and be like, and this is how we're going to destabilize Syria or whatever. You know what I mean? But like then sometimes they just commit genocide with the weapons and show the proof of concept. And just the uh, thought about evacuating your loved ones. Like, I know we have Zionist intelligence agents who listen to this show. So I would just say, like, how much is your grandma worth to you? What's the price tag on her? Like, what would you pay? This is exactly why this coordination and the allowing of people to evacuate on a price is is based on. It's actually based on the, the ability of people to think, how much would I pay to save my parents? How much would I pay to save my grandmother? How much would I pay to save my husband? And then if it was like 5,000 USD, it's too much. I don't have that. I would have to borrow to the end of my life and be in debt. But then you would say, but then if 5,000 is the price of my husband, then I would do it because I would love to have my husband or my parent or anyone I love alive. And we would do it. And this is how they make sure they make benefits from us in all ways. And the investment of armed and killing us and enjoying that. Because if you watch TikTok, Israelis are enjoying our bloodlust. They love it. They love killing us. They love torturing us. And they they love not just kidnapping our babies and children because they are like the pedophile haven, but also they love killing our babies. And that's why you would be able to see soldiers saying that I was looking for a baby and I couldn't find the baby. So I killed a 12 year old child as it's it's something to, to, to brag about. And the universe is fine with that. It's okay. It's as the UK media, I wouldn't specify which one, have described it. It's a four-year-old young lady because it's Palestinian. But when it's Israeli soldiers, female soldiers, who are 19 or 20 or more, it's teenagers. And this is how the world is dealing with us. We're not even counted as humans. Everyone is benefiting from our murder, our massacre, our genocide, and even our dehumanization. And then our choice or ability to be able to think how to save our families and then to pay money for that. And they've benefited from all of this. There is something you just mentioned about how our Nakba is their entertainment. And this is something that I have been noticing as well, where it's not just whatever premise they rely on to justify their assault is not 
legitimate. We're seeing that it's being carried out as a means of entertainment, right? We have seen Israeli occupation soldiers playing with the toys of Palestinian children who have been expelled from their homes, who might be killed, who might be under the rubble, who may have been kidnapped. They're taking photos of themselves playing with Palestinian children's toys. They're taking photos of, of themselves in amusement parks in Gaza, pushing themselves in, in carts that belonged to Palestinian children. They're taking pictures of themselves in Palestinian children's bedrooms. And then there was a French-Israeli guy who posted photo with lingerie and then put it on a dating app. And it's like, bro, hard to imagine why you're single. If an Arab have done like just a little bit of that, everyone would have called us sex-driven people, would have called us sexist and patriarchal and all of those, those names and stuff to be labeled. But then when Israeli and a French soldier do it, it's fun. It's lovely. Let's date him. Let's date this criminal. And it's fine. The world is letting it go. That's why Israel knows that they can't go on with this Nakba. They can't go with our expelling to Egypt or to Sinai or to the ships that Israel have talked about to take us to other countries that take refugees or to kill all of us or to prevent us from going back to the north. And whatever they want, they can do that. Not be just because they, they're like showing their amusement and happiness and entertaining in our genocide and having people clubbing for them and supporting them and calling it a self-defense. But at the same time, because Israel knows they have done that in 1948 and they were granted a state. So why not? Why not to do it? Yeah, it worked the first time around, right? They were rewarded with a state after committing the Nakba. And then for 75 years, nobody in the international community required that they abide by their international obligations, that they even allow the refugees to come back to their homes and their land. And so it's like, what's the incentive to ever consider complying with international law? There's absolutely none whatsoever because they've never been required to do so. Israel has always been to the rule and in international law, and it continues to act accordingly. And this, the Nakba of Gaza is the perfectly predictable outcome they give them a month just to complete committing a genocide and now when the month is over and israel is still killing us and they have their their secret report delivered to the icj nothing is happening nothing is happening at all a, a state or a colony that have been taken to the icj at least twice for offense of a genocide is still left out to commit it I, I want to ask you something about the idea of Nakba as a Palestinian, you know, having lived Nakba for generations now and this choice that Israel puts before you, which is you can stay and be killed or you can leave and we'll call it voluntary migration, right? That's what they call it. It's voluntary. But what other choice do they put before you when they, your only option is death and you get to choose which way you die? You choose to die under the rubble or you choose to die by starvation or you choose to die by torture, but you will definitely be killed. And 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 we've seen like different responses to Nakba in this particular moment that we're living. We've seen the people who have said, I, will, I would rather die with dignity in my home. I will not leave my home no matter what because they know what happens during Nakba because they've already lived it before. And so they're, they're very defiant and asserting their right to live in their homes and on their land, no matter the circumstances, and they will not be driven from their homes. And then we're also seeing people who rightfully also are just trying to survive because uh, Palestinians 
need to survive. If we are to survive as a people, we have to stay alive, right? And so there are people who are who are trying to do whatever they can to secure a way out, realizing that that the, the longer they stay, the, the more inevitable their extermination will be. First of all, we as Palestinians, we know that we, we are uh, a target and we will be eliminated and eradicated by Israelis wherever we are because we have family members, we have friends, we have known so many people that even when they went outside, they were either killed or they were like targeted by Zionist groups to be um, uh, to have their reputation damaged or their work lost or to have them imprisoned and all of that. So we as Palestinians, wherever we exist, Israel is there to eliminate us. So it's not just because we exist in Palestine, wherever we exist, Israel is there to kill us. That's why of experience, we know that it's not about where we are. It's about who we are and that Israel would like to kill us. Second thing, with the people who, who are trying to stay there, People know, and we as Palestinians, because we know that being a Palestinian is the most important thing to preserve and keep. Our life is the most important thing because Israel is, is always behind us. But at the same time, everyone in Gaza know that more than 70% of the population are refugees. So all, like 70% of the people in Gaza, like my own family, my father's side, I'm my mother's side, are, are both have been in other like cities and villages and they have been forcibly evicted from there. Their land was taken, their families were totally massacred. They had to lose everything, all the belongings, and to be evacuated to another place to live in a very undignified life because some other immigrants, the settlers, who came to Palestine claiming that they came for protection and they came as asylum seekers, and we protected them. We have never had any issues with, with Jews. And when we saw victims of violence, we welcomed them even in our houses. However, they were not coming to evacuate. They were coming as, as settlers to create a colony and evict us and massacre us. And when they did that, we had to suffer the first time with, with, with an Akba that's still ongoing for more than 75 years. And we in Gaza, we know that if we evacuated our homes, we know that this would be the beginning of another at least 75 years of suffering. It's not the end of it. You don't end it when you evacuate. You just start another stage of it, a worse stage. We tried it once, and it is worse in this time. Each time it gets worse. It never gets better, and we know that. So people who had to evacuate, for so many reasons, either because they were afraid of themselves uh, and because they know the most important thing is to have the Palestinian life alive as much as we can, although every one of us is to be targeted by the Israelis, or the people who tried to evacuate and they were killed on the safety route or were killed in the south that was said to be safe, but it wasn't. Every place was targeted at the same manner, almost the same, the same way. Or the people who stayed there and they like showed smooth, steadfastness and what people call resilience, which is not at like the biggest and the most beautiful way that we could be able to witness in a life. They have been not just killed every single day and every single hour and have their, their beloved people sniped in front of them. They had their tanks surrounding their homes. And I remember a friend of mine who was a psychologist. 
He told us when the tanks are surrounding their homes and the the, um, uh, the F-16 and F-35 is bombarding everywhere and the helicopter is sniping with the machine snipers and all of that, the kids are scared. And when a kid is scared, what would a kid do? They would scream. And he was talking that now they are trying to teach their kids how to show fear in other ways than screaming. Because you are not allowed to scream. Because screaming means that you are alive. And being a Palestinian and alive is not allowed in this universe. So they are teaching kids to scream or to be afraid in other ways and to show it in other manifestations. So people who stayed there are not just having their families killed, are not having themselves injured, and they're treating themselves because there's no hospital, hospitals at all, at all because Israel demolished them, bombarded them, uh, besieged them, and killed and kidnapped our beloved doctors and our patients but also are now putting them in that cage where they, where they are preventing all types of aid. No food, no water, no vegetables. All the agricultural lands of us, they have bombarded them. Or our solar panels and wells and the ground wells and all of that have been bombarded and demolished by the Israelis. They left them with nothing. And people now are actually starving to death. At least seven babies, seven infants had to starve and dehydrate until they died. Because Israel not just prevent milk for babies, but they are also preventing food for the mothers. So the mother wouldn't have milk in their bodies to feed the baby and the baby would dehydrate and die. And at least seven of them are already killed by the Israelis. And many other children and women and men are dying for the same reason. And the universe is... is silent, happily watching, as if nothing is happening. So those people who have chosen in the hardest circumstances, either because they don't want to live another Nakba, and they know that the murder is coming to us, so they stayed, or because they couldn't leave because they are elderly, or they are sick, they don't have vehicles, or they, they, they just can't do it. And they stayed there, are now facing the worst atrocities. And the world is getting fed up and bored by what's happening. And they're leaving them to, to live this status. So our evacuation, our status of being refugees, again, it's not something that we are happily choosing between. It's a situation where you are forced to do something. And that's why some people in the North, at least there's now 500,000, Palestinians in the north of, of Gaza Valley, still there, suffering from all, all things that you could ever imagine and not imagine, and dying there, some of them are starting to hardly walk to the south while knowing that, as Israel have done it so many times, they could be killed at any second by snipers or the Israeli tanks who are waiting for them at the safety corridor to kill them or they would be dying of starvation in the, in the north. So some of them are, are starting to walk to the south, not because they give up or because they are not as Palestinian as they should. No, because everyone in the, in the world have let them down. And now they are left to, be, to die either by starvation or by direct bombardment. So the most important thing to keep is our life. So whatever would preserve our life, even if walking to the south would preserve it, it should be the priority. So some people are choosing that if they were able to do it and they're trying to do it. And sometimes they, 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 they do it. But then the south also is not safe because Israel is going to invade it. 
Israel is everywhere and damaging all of our lives. And those people who suffered in the north, evacuated to the south, were killed in the south. My friend, my colleague, a dentist, she evacuated three times from underneath the rubble, three times, herself, all of her family. And in the fourth time, she was bombarded and she was killed like this, as if she has had never suffered. And she had a life, she had dreams, she had so many things. But for Israel, it doesn't matter. And for the world, it's okay. But when I say the world, I don't mean all the world. Because I know that there is a lot of good people, good faith people. The communities are good and the communities are with us. But the governments are not. And the testimony or the thing I can say that happened today is a man, a soldier, whose name is Aaron. He walked today in the U.S. to the Israeli embassy. And he said that he can't be part of the genocide over Palestine. And he doesn't accept the colonization and occupation of another nationality or, or population. And that's why he would show a protest in extreme way because all other ways didn't succeed. And he walked to the embassy and let himself into fire in his way to protest what's happening and asking the government, the U.S., to stop the Israelis' massacre and genocide over Gaza and Palestinians. And this is a very, like, it's a very touching, it's a very strong, but it's also very sad. Why do good people have to die? Because of good reasons. Why bad people have to live, like, as nothing is happening and to have benefits, while good people and people who are supporting them are dying for that? It's very injustice. I would love Aaron to live and to see the end of a genocide and to see what he screamed while he was on fire. He said free Palestine multiple times. Why? Why would he die while saying that? And the worst in the video is that Israeli soldiers, the people in the security for them, the Israeli embassy, as Israel would always do, were defending themselves and having guns it's like directly into Aaron, who was on fire, because again, Israel always defended itself and they wanted to, to, to put some, some gun and, and um, bullets into Aaron's body that was already in a flame. So this type of, of destiny of the people who are supporting us and our own people, doesn't mean that we as Palestinians are not doing our best. So the main thing is that those Palestinians who are still in Palestine, those Palestinians who are in Gaza, either in the north or in the south, those Palestinians who have been killed, none of them have, have been less than a hero in staying and standing for their right of self-determination, for their right of having a country called Palestine, for their nationhood, for their right of freedom of occupation and freedom of colonization, Everyone have been very successful in that. And at the same time, everyone who stood with the Palestinians and all of those rights, among them Aaron, are good people and people to be proud of themselves. And I wish that us and them would soon have justice and have what we deserve as people who stood for right and justice in this universe that still until now doesn't show any respect to the rights, human rights, or justice of any communities, even those who support the human rights of other communities. But still I wish that we are in a, in a, in a, in a place and in a route, walking through a way for a better life 
for us Palestinians and for the people supporting us and for each type of aggression, genocide, oppression that any nation is living. And I believe that if we were able to stand against what's happening in Palestine now and change the equation of the world that have been going on for decades, if not centuries, then we would be able to flip all the equation for the whole world and hopefully would be seeking and reaching a better world that everyone should be living in, not a world like the one we're living at, where, where a genocide is a televised and kids, women, men are killed in front of our eyes and none of us is capable of stopping it. Not because it's a natural disaster, no, because someone decided to do it and we're still unable to stop it. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for bringing up Aaron Bushnell, who self-immolated at the Israeli embassy. And I want to read some of his words, actually. He said, many of us like to ask ourselves, what would I do if I was alive during slavery or the Jim Crow South or apartheid? What would I do if my country was committing genocide? The answer is, you're doing it now. He said, before he lit himself aflame in front of the Israeli embassy, he said, I'm about to engage in an extreme act of protest, but compared to what people have been experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers, it is not extreme at all. This is what the ruling class has decided will be normal. He said, I will no longer be complicit in genocide. And then he lit himself on fire. And just like you said, the only thing they know is the gun. They pointed the gun at him even as he burned out of this existence. And they pointed a gun at him because they're scared of him. They're scared of the message that he'll send. That's why they're going to paint him as somebody who was crazy and not somebody who was principled. I saw one of my mutual Shatha. She said, if he had sacrificed his life for the empire, he'd be painted as a hero. But because he exposed the moral rot from inside, they will attack his memory. And so everyone should remember the name Aaron Bushnell. I do um, I do a Mikey Intifada at the beginning of episodes usually. And this week it was going to be, you can call me Mikey Intifada if you needed a fire extinguisher and all you had was a gun. What's happening now in Palestine would not stay in Palestine. Israel only it breaks the threshold of what's allowed to happen in the world and the world would follow. Israel have already introduced terms and crimes that have never happened in the universe. Israel have introduced schoolicide, which is the eradicating and, and determination to kill schoolers, academics, and also the educational infrastructure. And now we have that no notion because Israel have done that and it would be repeated in all over the world. We have medical side or health side where Israel is dedicated to kill Palestinians who are working in the, in the medical field, the professionals, the senior professionals. So they make sure that Palestinians have no way to be treated in a dignified way. And that we don't have the capabilities of doing that. This actually is nothing new. Israel have always been like in, since 1948, when they have been attacking the villages, they always started with the medics and the paramedics and the, and the nurses to make sure that whoever they would kill or injure wouldn't have the ability to be treated. So everyone's already killed now or a little bit later. 
And, and this type of strategy is, is used now again in a very excessive and aggressive way in Gaza and also in the West Bank, very rapidly attacking all hospitals in Gaza Strip, kidnapping, like God knows, hundreds of, of, our, of my colleagues, hundreds of my senior doctors, hundreds of people who have treated me and my family for, for like decades. And, and all of our hospitals are now damaged and many of our patients are already killed or taken as hostages. And our doctors are taken as hostages and treated less than animals. And it's let by the world, it's fine, it's accepted. And all of those strategies, all of those things that Israel have broken, even, you know, Israel is occupying power. And even for the UK, is UK called Palestine as occupied Palestinian ter territory. So, so UK recognizes Palestine as being occupied and the ghost doesn't occupy Palestine, it's Israel. So by the UK law, Israel is occupying power. It's illegally occupying Palestine and doesn't have any right of self-defense over the occupied people. It doesn't have that. However, UK officials, UK media personals, in a very shameful way, they go out and brag saying that Israel have the right of self-defense, although they know that by law they don't. But they also know that Israel have started a, a time, a decade, where where the language is actually changing the law and changing the, the media, nations or terminology and all of that. And this a new status is going to be used, abused with all other nations around the world. If we haven't stopped Israel, the success of this colony would be repeated in so many other countries, not just by colonial powers, but also by what other countries call as terrorists. Because when you allow something wrong to happen, it would be repeated and then don't judge it because you allowed it at the first place. Stop it from the beginning or don't start to judge it when someone else repeats what Israel have done at the beginning. And it's also already having impacts all over the world in Congo, in Sudan. The occupation has its hands dirty there. What's something that you want people to know about Gaza that you think that they don't already know? And what is your hope for Gaza? What I would like people to know about Gaza is that one of our names or the city names is Phoenix. And it's something that I don't know why, but it's part of our nature as Palestinians. We always arise from the ashes. And this is something I've seen all over the last six aggressions I've witnessed in Gaza. After each aggression, we were able to stand together. We were able to come as a community to to show cohesion, to support and show solidarity in between us. And at the same time, after each aggression, we did our best, not just to rebuild what Israel have already demolished and bombed, although Israel didn't allow the, the aid to, to rebuild Gaza, but we did our best to rebuild it in the best way. But also at the same time, we made the best effort in ourselves to make Gaza more diverse, to make Gaza more beautiful, to make Gaza a place we as Palestinians inside it would feel home, would feel happy, would feel secure, and a place where people would come for tourism. We, we used to have more than 222 heritage places in Gaza, and we cherished them. Each, like, uh, I, I remember medical... Um, missions when they used to come to Gaza, they didn't have to visit those places, but we always took them there because they we wanted them to know that Gaza is among the oldest cities in the world. And you need to see those beautiful things, our, our beautiful old churches, the third 
all this church in the world. You need to see our beautiful palaces, our beautiful mosques, very old places, and you need to see and 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 feel the the beauty of the people. Those people who have been always violently treated, oppressed in all ways, have been denied every part of happiness and control of their lives. They were totally generous, beautiful, kind, and loving to anyone who approached them. Wherever you would go in Gaza, you would find people helping you. You would find people smiling at you, trying to offer you whatever they have or even don't have because they are so generous. They're very lovable. Wherever you would pass, you find people inviting you to, to food, which is the most delicious food in the, in, in the universe. No place cook better food than Palestinians. And sorry, I know uh, I'm a refugee in Gaza, but up to my taste, there is no place that creates better food than the food in Gaza. So everyone, we wanted everyone to taste it, to try it, to, to love our cuisine. And at the same time, we wanted to be diverse. So people who traveled outside used to come back to Gaza and create those international cuisines because we wanted people in Gaza, like we have 2.5 million of people. We wanted them to, to taste something that they have never tasted because they are denied access outside. More than 98% of the population are denied that but they have the right to know it. So we brought cuisines. We have Italian cuisines. We have uh, French cuisines. We have so many cuisines created by Palestinians, but this is what we have. We also have, you know, our like our cinema was bombed by the Israeli occupation and each time they like put it on fire and bombarded and all of that. However, in the last few years when I came, although we had like so many destruction and all of that, People were trying to, to, to build like rehabilitation places, places where you could have like different feelings when you go there because all the community is traumatized now. And that's why they had like made three cinemas. It wasn't a cinema. It was a room with a projector and people buy like a popcorn outside and then you go inside. It's just a big TV, but it's fine. We had we had the, the chance to, to feel it. What, what is the concept of a, of a cinema, finally? And we loved it. And we had like, we were creating so many things to make us feel as normal human beings, because we are. We have dreams, we have ambitions, we're growing very fastly. Gaza is among like the most populated area, but also because of Israel, we have the highest unemployment rate. However, people didn't stood like silent and dealt with that. No, we were having among like the highest population going into um, online and freelancing markets. Women, men, even my like even my siblings, my sisters, both of them are pharmacists and they couldn't find jobs. They started learning voiceover and voice art, art, artists and all of that. And they were working from that. And my brother, since he was like in the university, just starting to learn all of that, he's a musician. He was working in a musician and music engineering. He didn't study it. He learned it by himself. And at the same time, he started working and programming. And just because we love learning, we love progression, we wanted to build a better future, a better community. And we worked hard for that. And I've seen it by myself in my field work in Gaza, I was working in domestic violence and all the community from the government to the local people, parents with their babies, they were coming to this type of activism to bring the community to a better future, lacking domestic violence and lacking colonial violence. We're all together working on that. And I went out while our leaders, more than 25 leaders out of 300 all over Gaza Strip, 
we're, we're, we're having the activism and the activities implemented one by one. And I was so happy leaving the new leaders just flourishing and starting this progression and change in Gaza just to be able to, you know, expand it to other places outside after the success. And then in a few moments, in a few days, in three months, everything we worked so hard to build and rebuild and strengthen and find another way and another way and another way is now demolished. And all of our beloved people who worked so hard to allow them better life are now killed. And my leaders are either killed or someone of, of them contacted me and told me, Hala, it was, I was seeking, uh, looking for a better future, a prosperous one, working on it. And now I don't have myself a future. I had my parents killed. I have my sister's uh, sister and her uh, kids killed. I don't know anything about my other siblings. I don't know anything about my future, my status now. I was a student. I'm not anymore. The university is gone. All our universities are gone. And it's fine. The university is letting it go. And they are leaving Gaza to become ash again. And it's ash. We've never been that that far. Gaza have never been distracted to this level. It's a very beautiful, very old, very, very prosperous place. And now it's it's left to burn, to ashes. And I don't know anything about our future. Where we were, I'm not sure we can ever go back to it again. Because the amount of letting down that the universe have showed us, I mean the governments, I'm very, very appreciating and proud of what the people have done. But I'm so sorry, it didn't change anything for the local people in Gaza. They're still killed, they're, kill they're still sniped. They're still hearing stuff like human rights and women rights and children rights while having their own children killed in front of their eyes. And the, the saddest thing is that thing that many of my like friends have said, the most painful thing is that we know human rights and our kids have learned it. And now we can't even debate with our kids that this world is like that because they have learned it in schools. So you can't portray to them something they have seen that it does exist, but it doesn't exist for us. So wherever we are now, I'm not sure where we are going to be in the future, but I'm sure that the universe have let us down and it's unfair. We did our best to be in the best mm. positions and to recreate everything and to protect our community. But the situation the universe have put us in now is something unprecedented. It, it's worse than the worst nightmare. I could have imagined the world would be dealing with something, not to mention my own community and my ho own home to be dealt with. And I don't know where Gaza is going. I don't know where Palestine is going, but I know where the universe is going. It's doomed. Thank you so much for sharing everything that you shared and all for, for all of your energy and and feelings and thoughts with us. And thank you for being on the pod. Folks, that's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Go ahead and check out our full episodes and sources at www.palestinepod.com. Find us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com. And support us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Palestine pod. Thank you so much for being here today and uh, 
have as good a day as you can. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Laura. Hopefully, it would make a difference. We can start telling people to join the Patreon. The show wouldn't be possible without a Patreon. You got to get on our Patreon. Support us on Patreon. You can, you know, because like I've been watching all these other podcasts and they just keep plugging Patreon like all the time. Yeah, I'm going to clip what you just did right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs>